welcome to um, Ask the Expert. It's a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in the type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event. We'll post it on the Sugar Science site uh, YouTube channel shortly after the presentations. If you have questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. And David has also said he is willing to take questions during his slide presentation. So today we have our guest, David Wagner, PhD. He's co-founder and CSO, Chief Scientific Officer at Optimune LLC. He's also an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at University of Colorado. And his expertise is in de uh, developing diagnostics for autoimmune disease and therapeutic approaches um, to control autoimmune inflammation. Optimune, his company, focuses on type 1 diabetes and multiple sclerosis, and the company has created an FDA-approved drug for clinical trial in type 1 diabetes. So welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Monica. Pleasure to be here. Great. Um, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of your career path and what excites you most about the research you're working on right now? Sure. Um, so I did a PhD in biomedical science at East Tennessee State University Cullen School of Medicine. And uh, in that program, I got introduced to and fell in love with immunology. So um, although I had a quirky path because my, I'm going to say my first PhD when I was training to be a gene jock fell apart. And uh, so I ended up uh, switching directions uh, completely, although it did give me a molecular biology background as I came into immunology. Um, but having fallen in love with immunology, that's the direction I really wanted to go. So that led me to my postdoc choice, which was National Jewish Medical Research Center in Denver, here in Denver, which brought me out west. Um, once I got to Colorado, I realized how much I loved Colorado. So I ended up staying. Um, my career path, a little, a little bit uh, atypical, I suppose, uh, after my postdoc. Well, so I did a, my traditional immunology postdoc that then expanded into, largely thanks to JDRF, expanded into a, a diabetes a career path. And why I did that, um, years ago, we won't say how many, JDRF started a program to encourage postdocs who weren't diabetic um, researchers to come into the field. And this really was a transitional postdoc that transitioned to your faculty position. And that's exactly what it did for me. And uh, I utilized that to take a position at what at the time was known as the Web Wearing Research Institute. Mm -hmm. um, Web Wearing was a standalone which is gonna be important when we talk about Optimum or Opti a little bit later on. But as a standalone, it had its own board of directors. And that's where I met the current CEO of uh, the company that I co-founded. So I think a little bit in, we'll talk, we can talk about that uh, in some more detail. But uh, WebRain was acquired pretty much by the University of Colorado. So that took me into the Anschutz Medical Center part of uh, the University of Colorado. And so that is how my career developed, more standard academic at that point. But because of the early work that I had done at the uh, WebWearing Institute, and that's how I met um, uh, Charlie Henry, who became the CEO of Opti, 
And part of how that worked is new faculty in the Institute were paired with individual board members if there was an opportunity to look at commercialization of, of, of ideas that, that were being developed. So what I ended up doing was giving a, a seminar to the board of directors and then uh, the board afterwards asked me if I wanted to stay in a strictly academic approach or would I be interested in a potential commercialization approach or a combination of both. So not being able to make up my mind, I chose both. And uh, that way I ended up academic side, uh, which turned out to be very helpful because I could apply grants um, on the academic side that I could use to develop a product. Um, and so that's really how, how the whole thing got up and got going. So at the moment I wear two hats really. Um, I not so much professorial. I, I don't really teach anymore. I did that for several years. Uh, so I did stand in classrooms and lecture medical students, dental students, nursing students, even some undergrads, all of which was fun. I loved doing it. Um, and I moved a bit more away from that as Opti began to do better and better. So um, I've written quite a few grants on both the academic side, now the business side. Uh, Opti's obtained, I think, a recent count. We had, had four phase one grants, two phase two grants. So uh, we've generated a little over $5 million um, in business development money. And so I, I do uh, all of the grant writing on that side. Um, probably my academic side is winding down a bit. Um, I don't have plans to leave the university absolutely at present. If Optimune does do well, I probably will, uh, but you know, no real commitments there. Uh, but with Opti, we're, I think we are slightly beyond startup. I think we could technically be defined early stage right now. Um, as you alluded to, we do have an FDA approved IND. Uh, we are, we dosed six humans at this point. Uh, I'll talk a bit about that. We're also dosing companion animals. And that's the part I'm a little bit excited about. And um, I'll explain why. Um, so, so what am I, I, I think if you want, I can launch into my slides pretty quickly, unless anybody has a question on, on career path at this point. Yeah, that's great. That was excellent, you know, synopsis and kind of really illustrative of how helpful partnership and mentorship uh, by business um, through academia can be so helpful. Um, because the road is so unclear for many EC, you know, young scientists, like, okay, where, you know, how, what are these career paths and how do I navigate them? So that was really great. Thank you. Well, and I mean, like, I threw in quickly. So, I mean, when I was a grad student, I mean, the idea of going into industry was like, you know, no, you're not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, and plenty of people ended up doing it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there are uh, people doing it. Uh, a lot of institutions are doing it now. Yeah. So if this is a career choice someone's thinking about, you can find a way to do it. That's Talk great. to people who do it. Yeah. I think sure. that's the way forward is actually networking and reaching out. So let's talk about your work. Okay, so everybody on this um, with your group certainly is well aware 
of type 1 diabetes. So I'm, I'm not really going to go into lots of detail on that because, you know, we know the autoimmune component. So one of the things I did very early, and this was even in my postdoc, was begin looking at the T-cell subset that moves into the pancreas, attacking islets, certainly infiltrating islets, attacking beta cells and leading to loss of insulin. And one of the things I did that was certainly controversial at the time was come up with a, a different descriptor for what these cells are. So Tregs, I think people are very well aware of. What um, my group looked at was the expression of CD40 on effector T cells. And this was controversial. CD40 is considered an antigen-presenting cell molecule, predominantly on B cells, where it was well-defined. Um, but it turns out it can be expressed on T cells. It's inducible on T cells. And one of the things that induces CD40 expression is inflammatory conditions. And in particular, I'm not giving away any secrets, gamma interferon is a great inducer of CD40 on a T cell. So one of the things we found is that CD40 expressing T cells indeed do attack the pancreas. So we could isolate that population of cells, transfer to skid recipients and get disease transfers. Uh, we could regulate uh, CD40 on those cells and uh, both prevent diabetes onset in mouse models, as well as reverse hyperglycemia in already diabetic uh, animals. So some stats just up front, there's at least 1.25 million cases of type 1 diabetes in the US, so this audience is well aware of that. Uh, something that was surprising to me, um, basically all mammals get diabetes, including type 1, and dogs in particular develop what is considered exclusively type one. So it turns out it's probably not completely exclusively, uh, but it is lots like type one, sharing same sorts of um, symptoms. And when you do necropsy on a diabetic dog, look at the pancreas. The pancreas in a diabetic dog looks an awful lot like the pancreas of a diabetic human. Not so much like diabetic mouse, when, where there's extensive infiltration in a diabetic uh, mouse. Uh, cats also develop diabetes. It's typically considered mostly to be type two. Uh, so often the moniker tubby tabby, and they can end up diabetic. Okay, but given that, it's um, something that's gonna come up a little bit later. Okay, so the molecular system that I've been interested in for a number of years is uh, CD40, uh, again, where is it expressed? Mostly on antigen-presenting cells for sure, but certainly on T cells. And I spent a lot of time and some GWAS data uh, determining that that indeed was true. Uh, and CD40 interacts with its natural ligand, but turns out it interacts with several, a few other proteins too, um, the natural ligand being CD154. And so when this combination interaction occurs, there's extensive inflammation. So what happens on the T cell side at least is induction of a host of inflammatory cytokines. So all the ones in diabetes that we're used to, interferon gamma, uh, TNF alpha, IL-1 beta, IL-1 alpha. Um, what was also pretty interesting, and we published this, is this interaction can induce IL-17. 
So we considered it a um, bridge really between TH17 and TH1 cells. So um, trying to block this interaction has been um, sought after by a number of groups for a lot of years. And the principal way most people went after it was to do monoclonal antibody. So one approach is a monoclonal that uh, binds to CD40. The problem there is when that was uh, tried, uh, CD40 being engaged by monoclonals leads to further CD40 activation. So that's really a problem. Uh, the other approach was monoclonals directed to CD154. And this showed a lot of early uh, success and uh, gained lots of interest. The problem became when this got to phase one and then phase two clinical trials, and this was initially being tried in lupus, not in diabetes, but uh, antibodies to CD154 ended up uh, binding to platelets, which are a major source of CD154, uh, and that was described well after the CD154 molecule was described. But it turns out platelets are a major source of CD154. So the antibody treatment uh, coagulated platelets and led to uh, thrombotic embolism. So obviously quite a uh, severe outcome. So an approach that we came up with was to take a portion of the CD154 protein the portion that is known to interact with CD40 and create a, a small protein, a small peptide, um, which is comprised of this region of the CD154 protein. Uh, so it's a 15 amino acid. Um, we actually ended up doing several different versions. So uh, the, a 15 mer that is the exact lifted sequence from the mouse uh, CD154 protein we also did a 13-mer, 8-mer, 10-mer, um, and a 4-mer. Um, all of this based around a central um, nexus called uh, lysine, glycine, tyrosine, tyrosine, so KGYY. And um, depends on the slides that I show. I sometimes refer to it as KGYY15. But those, the three, the, the lysine and the two tyrosines, are known to interact directly with CD40. So what we were attempting to do is, is block that interaction. So the first set of experiments that we did was to take these different versions of peptides, all containing that core KGYY sequence, and treat pre-diabetic NOD mice and look at outcomes. And what happened is the 15-mer was really quite good at preventing diabetes onset. So significantly delaying diabetes onset, as well as uh, decreasing the percentage of mice that became diabetic. Uh, this graph at this point represents well over 100 mice that have been treated uh, with the 15 mark. Uh, the other versions, uh, fewer mice for sure, but uh, at least 20 in each group. Um, the 13 mark works okay-ish, not as good as the 15 mer, the eight and the 10 mer um, delay very little, but over time, um, the, uh, those mice did catch up with uh, controls, but there was a significant delay in reaching that point. Uh, controls received a scrambled version of the 15 mer, or so RGD peptide is another 15 mer that's about 
50 amino acids upstream of the KGYY sequence. So again, a portion of the CD154 protein. Also, I'll point out very quickly that RGD is known to interact with integrins, a variety of different integrins. So the RGD portion that could interact with different sets of integrins had no impact on diabetes onset, whereas the, the best version, the 15-MERD that um, uh, interacts with CD40 uh, was uh, able to uh, delay diabetes onset as well as a substantially uh, lower number of animals that uh, were able to become diabetic. So we also looked at using this version of the peptide, of the 15-mer peptide in uh, post-diabetic mice. So once mice had onset of diabetes uh, described by a blood glucose level of 250 milligrams per deciliter um, on three consecutive readings. So if we treated with the 15-mer at that point, uh, in about a one-week period, we were able to drop those mice um, glycemic level down to uh, normal. In this case, we were saying normal was less than 150. Whereas uh, controls, including an antibody to CD154, so the antibody prevents diabetes onset, the antibody to CD154, but it doesn't reverse um, uh, diabetes in treated mice. Whereas the 15-MER was able to uh, reduce um, hyperglycemia. And we did do some histology on these mice. And one of the things that's happening over time is the level of infiltrate in the pancreas is reducing. Um, so that was all really quite exciting, uh, getting uh, nice data in preclinical uh, laboratory settings. But for those people who've been involved in diabetes research, I've been there over 20 years now, one of the things we know is that um, the animal studies in mice, the laboratory, strict laboratory setting, really hasn't translated to the clinic, uh, at least to human clinic. So one idea we came up with is once we discovered that cats and dogs develop diabetes and that dogs develop what is, at least by vets, is considered to be type one, we wondered if we could um, move this uh, therapeutic into companion animals. So one, to test under more clinical conditions. So these were uh, uh, pets, companion animals, that were recruited through the Colorado State University Veterinary Teaching Hospital. Um, so we went to CSU, made a proposal, got, um, it turns out you don't get an IACUC approval, you get an IRB because they view their animals as patients. So they have a, an IRB set up. So we got an appropriate IRB approval to treat diabetic animals. We recruited five in our initial study. So the animals um, met the criteria for diabetes. They have frequent urination, uh, general weight loss, some failure to thrive. They uh, have blood glucose um, well above normal range. Normal for a dog is considered 80 to about 150. 150 is a little bit high, but still considered within normal for dogs. Uh, and many, many of these dogs' blood glucose were daily average 300. 
Um, some were daily average 500, um, and uh, the meters really only went that far. So um, what we did was uh, set up a testing schedule where uh, we did an infusion to begin with, because when we did safety studies uh, going towards FDA approval, uh, and because we'd done the, the testing in mice as an IV infusion, uh, we decided to do the same thing in dogs. Although we're now, we've been able to move to a subcutaneous injection. So I can talk about that a little bit later. Um, so anyway, we infused a dose of uh, initially two milligrams per kilogram body weight for the dog into diabetic dogs. And then we followed what happened over eight weeks. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that a population of T cells I've been interested in are the RCD40 expressing cells. So it's a CD4 cell that also expresses CD40. And if you look at a control, which this is true in mice, it's true in humans, so we published that. And we haven't published this data yet on dogs, but it turns out it's true in dogs. So uh, control dogs were animals at CSU, vet uh, teaching hospital that were not diabetic, that were being seen in the clinic, uh, and are not autoimmune. So we collected blood samples, looked at the level of their CD40 expressing T cells, and it comes out at about 22%, which is the same in, in human adults, uh, and is the same in non-diabetic mice, roughly those levels. So the cells are there, but they're at a, a restrained level. And diabetic animals, um, so these were a series of different diabetic animals that came through the clinic over about a six-month period where a single blood draw was taken and given to us for analysis. And we found that this population of cells had drastically increased or were drastically increased in diabetic animals. Uh, we see the same thing in mice and we see the same thing in humans with diabetes. So this could be a control human versus diabetic human would look just like this. Um, and so in the five animals that we began dosing, uh, the animals were dosed initially on day zero, day three, and day six, and then they were dosed weekly following for up to eight weeks. And uh, what we saw was uh, over time, relatively quickly, by day 16, so that's what, one, two, three, four doses in, uh, their level of this uh, T-cell subset uh, had dropped back down basically to a, a normal range, to control levels. And uh, I only have through day 35, but we carried this out for eight weeks. Uh, and what's kind of exciting about this is these numbers came down. And again, so in mice, what we know is if we isolate these cells and transfer them, we can transfer disease. So that these cells are drivers. Um, quickly, I'll add in humans, if we look at this cell population, these are cells that respond to insulin peptides, to GAD, to um, each of the antigens that have been associated with diabetes. So, so we have evidence for them being uh, uh, pathogenic factors. So over time, we got that population of cells reduced. Um, what was then a little more exciting is uh, at the, uh, after eight weeks of treatment, the amount of insulin required per dog was significantly reduced. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting about dogs with diabetes, um, 
their blood glucose is very difficult to regulate. And after about five years, dogs don't regulate their glucose. So uh, some of these dogs end up on 20 to 30 units per day of insulin, which is really quite high. And they're still not uh, able to modulate their uh, daily blood glucose. Uh, but we were able to get significant drops in uh, insulin requirements. Two dogs went from 20 units per day down to one unit per day. So a really nice uh, reduction. Uh, their blood glucose levels uh, pre and post came down substantially. Three dogs dropped into normal, ra normal range. Two uh, were still outside. This, uh, this is only five of the eight that we originally looked at. but. Um, uh, and uh, the other two, I, I simply haven't added them in, but their numbers are looking just like this. So that they, they've come down from very high daily averages. And I will say that uh, we put CGMs on these animals. So they do have constant glucose monitors as well as uh, weekly blood checks. So we're getting data from both sources. Um, and this is just a highlight of it. Of, um, from a CGM reading, a female dog, we, we went in two weeks prior to treatment and got daily readings. Uh, we took daily averages during uh, the treatment phase and then post-treatment phase. So that's at the end of the eight-week period, uh, both a female and a male dog. Um, so in humans, <clears throat> everybody looks at uh, A1C levels. In dogs, vets uh, don't look at A1C. They look at glycated fructosamine. So basically it's the same thing. The difference is turnover. A1C turns over about every 30 days. Fructosamine turns over every 14 days. Uh, so we looked at uh, baseline prior to treatment, fructosamine levels before and after treatment. And we saw significant reductions in fructosamine, which would correlate to seeing a reduction in A1C. Um, another fairly exciting outcome is we saw increases in C-peptide in each of the treated animals. So um, I'll leave this up for a little bit because obviously we have different day points. So this dog, we're only at what day 25, but in this dog, we were at day uh, 40. Um, but in, uh, we, have, we didn't look at all uh, eight of the dogs that we've done so far, but in four that we did look at, uh, we saw uh, significant increases in C-peptide pre-treatment and post-treatment. So uh, why I bring all of those up, uh, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a very useful uh, website to see what's going on pretty much in any clinical trial, pretty much in the world, certainly in the US, will be listed on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, the three drugs, that are currently in trials, um, showing some promise certainly, uh, but the best outcomes when data is available on the website. Uh, the drugs have been able to slow C-peptide but not reverse it. And thus far, uh, none of them have been able to reduce uh, insulin or uh, insulin requirements or glucose levels. Um, so I'm basically about to finish. Uh, so we do, we did get an IND approval from the FDA to start human clinical trials. Uh, we got that April 13, 2020, and you can imagine 2020 was becoming 2020 at about that point. So with uh, the pandemic 
pretty much everything got shut down, which delayed us about a year. So uh, we are now um, treating uh, humans in a single ascending dose, double blinded trial. We have data, so it's healthy uh, controls at this point, which will be the phase 1A, phase 1B, will be to do the trial in type 1 diabetics. Um, we, so we actually ended up getting two IND approvals. One, we still have the approval for type 1 diabetics, uh, which we got first, turns out. But because uh, difficulty in uh, recruiting subjects, we went back into uh, test in healthy controls. And so we now have that approval. But we also got approval uh, to expand into animals. Um, and, and so where an IND for a human trial is something like 120 pages and INAD is one page. So quite a bit of difference, but um, still um, toward potential outcomes. So basically that's what I've been doing. Um, it's exciting and nerve wracking both at the same time. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, David, for sharing this uh, with us today. Uh, really interesting, um, you know, sort of progression and some interesting data. I do, uh, we're going to open it up for questions from the audience. And I would like to just kind of throw this uh, out there. I wondered what your thoughts were. I read, um, you know, the Nova Nordisk group and others wrote a, a 2019 May letter to Di Diabetologica sort of expressing doubt in the findings and your findings that the 15 mare protein like really could interact with CD40. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, so um, yeah, that was a nice study. And in fact, uh, Ken Kopitiers reached out to the, the uh, senior author reached out to me and we, and we talked about it a little bit. Uh, and I was completely supportive of their publication. Um, and you know, and he gave us a chance to answer, which we did, but it also put us a little bit on a, uh, a different research track that turned out to be very helpful. So, so what they found is um, they did doubt that the peptide was binding in that what they saw using surface plasmon resonance was very weak binding. They did see some binding, but weak binding. Um, and we then did a different version. We did something called Conexa. And so we actually hired a group to do this. And so for people who don't know what this is, because I didn't at the time, but um, so Conexa is you put your, your product of interest in solution and you put a, a binding receptor also in solution and you look at removal from solution as opposed to surface plasma resonance where you have to have an, an, a receptor stuck down your product and then a second detector be able to come in and get it. I mean, so SBR is perfectly fine, perfectly valid, but Conexa is a little more uh, detailed. Um, so we saw better binding than they did, but we still saw weak binding. So the KD is pretty low, which actually got me to thinking that potentially there could be a scenario where a weak binding may actually be preferential than strong binding, depending on what you want your product to do. So, pardon me, one of the things I worried about is if there was strong binding, and reviewers asked this question, 
And I loved it. I thought it was a great question. I attempted to answer, if the peptide can bind very strongly, would there be some sort of outcome of that? Uh, the argument is, yeah, there, there could be. And could it even be, if it binds strongly, that it's going to create some sort of inflammatory outcome? And it could. Uh, so part of my argument would be the lower KD weak binding means off on, off on. And if that's the case, maybe that's enough to prevent uh, sufficient binding to drive the inflammatory uh, reaction. Now, that's a bit of hand-waving. Um, and turns out the answer is a little more complicated and I can't really talk about it yet because we don't have all the IP in place. There are other molecules involved. So it's not just a binding to CD40 alone. There are additional molecules that I can't mention yet. Call me in six months and okay. I'll tell you what they are. Um, and so th there, there's a reason that it has to be a cellular look as opposed to just a ligand receptor look, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Yep. Um, I, I, that's very interesting. And thanks for clarifying that. Um, and it does show that rigorous, you know, sort of review and reproducibility can can really be so helpful um, in terms of just yeah. clarifying the path forward. So it's yeah. great. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to say can a bottle of champagne. <laughs> that's great. Is anyone else uh, yeah. interested in asking David a question? Here's a question. Does it affect the DC? Gender does it? Oh, uh, turn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it does. Uh, although. Okay, yeah, I, I can talk about this. Okay, so um, remember back, back, back. Um, maybe I'm, uh, is my screen still sharing? It's small, can you open it up again? Yeah, you? I will open it up. So remember when I talked about all these different size guys and these guys that were much slower. Well, we looked at another version, so a, a nimer if it's about here and the nine would actually look about like that. Um, I just didn't put it on here because it begins to get busy. Okay, what we discovered is the 15 mer for reasons probably alluding to what I was just talking about, the multiple molecules that are involved, the 15 mer has preferential binding to T cells. And we do know a little bit about why it's, it's these other molecules that are uh, specific, and we do know the one it is. Um, and I mean, I, I feel ter I feel terrible not being able to tell you yet. Um, and hopefully that's understandable. But the smaller versions really like dendritic cells. Um, and so I, I'm trying to remember one of them does have some preference for B cell. So even though there that isn't totally logical to me uh, in the beginning that because they, they should be based on what I would assume to be the same uh, binding motif. But one of the things we know is um, th there was a lot of serendipity really uh, in the 15 mer. Um, and I should mention, I guessed at these sequences, a, a little bit of a, I, I was a biochemist once upon a time and a little bit of an educated guess. So we knew the middle section, this, this KGYY section. And part of my thinking was kite tails. 
that maybe you need extenders on either end to be able to bind perhaps in a better way. And that was serendipitous. And the other thing I didn't know, someone else had done just KGYY and they, they took KGYY, it was a group at uh, UT Southwestern, I think. They took KGYY and they stuck it onto an immunoglobulin molecule to make a big molecule and it didn't work. So they got no uh, prevention of diabetes. And actually some of my colleagues at CU, uh, University of Colorado, um, asked me, um, why didn't I stick this 15 mer onto an immunoglobulin, make it bigger and use it like that? Because lots of groups had done that in the past. And um, why I didn't do it in the beginning is I thought it might be getting too big. And I worried about that. And turns out I seem to have been right. Um, I haven't tried. We haven't tried sticking, making it much, much bigger. Although we do know that a bigger version of these peptides doesn't work. So uh, size does matter. And uh, um, sequence of amino acids involved does matter. Uh, but as to dendritic cells, it seems to be the smaller ones. And it turns out it's probably, I can't, so I have published this sequence. There's an asparagine at the very end of the sequence. And that's the key uh, to where all the different molecules that this peptide is interacting with, it's that asparagine that makes the difference, at least for T-cell binding. That's really fabulous. I think, um, yeah, I mean, now it sort of suggests, right, there's some kind of conformational situation going on, or, yeah. yeah. So that's that's cool. Does anyone else have a question? I have one. Okay. Um, do you know what the half-life of this 15-mer is uh, in, like, in animals or in people? Because my understanding is small, the smaller molecules, they turn over quicker, one advantage of making like antibodies or fusion antibodies is the FC domain really increases the half-life a lot. Yeah. So if your small 15 mer is, you know, very quickly cleared um, and you're trying to make this a marketable product, um, what are your thoughts on, is this going to be continuous injection? Are you going to add something to stabilize it? Like, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Thanks Mark. That's, that's a good question. Um, so uh, we've done an uh, acetylation amidation. Um, so on the C-terminus, N-terminus of the peptide, which really does make a big difference. So um, turns out one of the things that's kind of, uh, I discovered sort of by accident, if your peptide starts with a valine, and this one does, it makes those peptides incredibly stable. Um, I don't know why. Uh, but they they are highly stable if valine is the first amino acid. And it, ours is. It was not by design. It was kind of by accident. Um, and again, we acetylated, amidated. So yeah, half-life is six hours uh, in vitro, in vivo, so inside the animal. Um, and there's a little caveat to that because it since it can, it can bind, to immune cells. Um, the half-life on a T cell is six days. So that's in culture, so that's in vitro. So using the peptide to then bind it to a cell and watch it go away, 
It's not six days, it's three days. It takes six days to go away. But at that point, the cells have all died anyway. So if it's bound to a cell, it can be longer. But in the uh, PK tox studies that were done, this was in beagles and in rats, uh, to meet FDA criteria, uh, it's uh, six hours in uh, serum. Uh, but you're right. Uh, that's pretty quick, six hours, yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah so, that's so what kind of dosing regimen would you expect? Would this be taken daily or probably less than that? Because it's if it's half hour, six hours, you know, that, you know, half life yeah. is six hours. Like, right. The way it is right now, we're working. So we're working on a time release formulation. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't talk about that too much. So in the uh, animal studies, the originals, the original studies were, um, and it gets to your point, actually, the original studies were an IV infusion of the amidated acetylated version of peptide. So that is more stable than just the peptide. But we were having to treat animals four times per week to see the data that I showed you. What we've since done is um, created a time release formulation using PLGA. So we can wrap it up in PLGA, and then administer that by sub-Q, and doing that in animals, we can do once-a-week injections. Ah, yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah, right. And PLGA, is that similar to, like, PEG? Oh, I think they are similar. I Because, I mean, I was thinking the pegylation is sticking the thing on the end, and that makes its breakdown much more slow. I think with PLGA, they're sort of, it's um, the, the Russian doll kind of thing. So they, they build out and it digests, digests, digests. And it turns out that your product is strewn throughout the different layers. So you get some release in 12 hours. You get a more release at 24 hours, more release at 48 hours. And in our most recent, um, I don't think this is uh, violating anything. In our most recent version um, of testing, we can see stable release at 15 days. So uh, we can really slow down how quickly uh, the drug is coming out. That's, and that's oh, in thank works. you. That's in works. Thanks for the question. Good question. Um, we have one more question. To reduce the, the reduced number of CD40 plus CD4 cells after treatment is due to apoptosis or do they become memory or other types of cells? Um, so it turns out that a lot of the cells actually, uh, that's a good question too, uh, are memory phenotype uh, to begin with. So uh, do they apoptose? Um, it, it doesn't look like a just explosion. I think it is. I think it is activation induced cell death over uh, a period of time. But the other thing is, uh, it also is the treatment is halting the generation of additional cells. So remember what I said in the beginning, you can start with a naive cell. So remember how you make Tregs with naives and, and you treat them out to get to your regulatory phenotype. Um, what it's doing is really controlling interferon gamma levels, other inflammatory cytokines also. But if you take a naive cell, dump some gamma interferon onto it, you can get CD40 expression. It, it's reported in B cells. 
We did it in T-cells. I don't think we published that. We might have. Actually, I take it back. I think we did. I think we have published that. But you'd have to dig into the paper uh, to find that. But so in the milieu of inflammatory cytokines, um, that's when you get the CD40 expression. So one of the early papers we published in 2004 uh, extended treatment, although that was using antibodies back then. I, we hadn't gotten to this uh, potential drug uh, candidate yet, but um, using uh, antibodies, if we hold the CD40 expressing T cell level down, Tregs go up. So I don't think it's that it was inducing Tregs. I think it was creating homeostatic space that allowed those reg cells to expand. So, um, Monica, I think you had a question uh, relative to Hans um, about the Treg. Oh yeah, I did. Uh, this was, you know, basically, you know, Tregs right now are pretty hot. People are very excited about, you know, tweaking them and and maybe even, you know, putting them back into the body. Um, the person's own, taking them out, growing them up, putting them back in, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, with the Tregs, you know, um, with Hans Doom just put out a paper of review basically. And he's talking about, you know, bolstering Tregs via transfer of polyclonal or islet specific Tregs or by giving low dose IL-2. And yeah. can you comment on this, uh, you know, you know, um, how your, how your work might inter intersect with that? Yeah, sure. So, um, I, by the way, love the low-dose IL-2 thing, by the way. So there's a couple of people working on it. Um, Lucy Walker in the UK has been doing this for a while, and she's getting some really nice data. Uh, Hans has been getting some nice data. But I, I got both mice and antibodies, I think, from Hans at one point. Yeah, we've, so, we've had um, Lucy Walker on the podcast of Sugar Science. She's she's very, has some really interesting work. I agree. Oh, she does. Yeah, yeah. I love her work. Um, so, um, so I think what we're doing is trying to create that very happy balance, uh, back again. So, uh, remember that you don't want way too many T-Regs. We like T-Regs, but I, maybe we love them, but the problem is if they're way too many, there are problems, then tumors, cancers can develop. So we don't want too many, but we don't want to be rid of them either. So I think how we mesh and I could certainly, I mean, I could see our treatment maybe in combination with low dose IL-2 with the idea that let's bring everything back into balance. Yeah, it's the more people, more scientists we speak with, it just becomes um, pretty clear that people are starting to think and visualize, you know, a three, a two, three, prong, four pronged approach. I agree. To the rebalance. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's interesting you say that. Uh, okay, last call. Is anyone else interested in, in throwing a question out there? Don't be shy. All right, then. Well, you can reach out to David and um, thank yeah. you uh, everyone for joining us at the Sugar Science. Our mission is to connect scientists in the type 1 diabetes and related research fields and enable their collaboration through our website, internet and events, and ultimately accelerating accelerating research to move us all closer to a cure for type 1 diabetes. Thank you again, David. Thank you. So thanks everyone. Thanks, Monica. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.